RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by people like you, patrons through Patreon. Would you like to see me say these words instead of just hearing it? That's just one of the perks that Patreon people get. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 329, Improbable Cause. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I am plain, simple Ken Ray. And I'm his handler and Intel mastermind, John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for ideas and ideals, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. This week, Improbable Cause, the one where somebody tries to kill Garrick. Or do they? Yes. Yes, they do. (gasps) Or do they? Yes. I've got trivia coming up in a moment. Or do you? But first... But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including the discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Or will we? We will. Okay. <laughs> Trivia for today's episode, Improbable Cause. The story is by Robert Lederman and David R. Long. Now, you may not remember Bob Lederman's name, but we have talked about him before, and you're definitely familiar with his work. He was an editor on TNG going back as far as season two, and he even got his directing chops on that show with I, Borg and Force of Nature. He has just three Trek writing credits to his name, this being his first. Now, for David, a lot less of a Trek connection. In fact, uh, this and two more episodes are his only professional writing credits. The teleplay here is by Rene Echeverria, and of course, Rene is well entrenched by now as a DS9 producer. This is only his third teleplay credit on DS9, though, and he has many more to go. Even if his name isn't on the credits, you can be assured that Rene had a hand in shaping pretty much all of DS9. And this was directed by Avery Brooks. This marks the fourth of nine episodes that Avery directs for DS9. Most recently, we talked about his directorial work on Fascination, and he will put his mark on at least one more episode per season until the end of the run. Now, I mentioned last week that the air dates for this episode and Through the Looking Glass were switched. Yes, Improbable Cause is part one of a two-parter, but they didn't know it at the time. Since Looking Glass was already in production, they made some minor tweaks to the story in order to set up the next one, The Die is Cast. So that's partly why we're covering this two-parter as two episodes rather than one, 
And we'll talk more about that later in the show, and I'll talk more about some of those changes after the recap. Now, another important name to mention here as a producer is Michael Piller. By this time in production, Michael was mostly moved over to Voyager, getting that show off the ground, but his last executive producer credit was on Through the Looking Glass. Ron Moore says it was really Pillar's final influence as an acting producer to encourage the split of the episode into two parts. Hey, uh, this episode has an Emmy Award, uh, nomination that is, <laughs> nominated for hairstyling, outstanding hairstyling in an episode of TV. Didn't win, though, sorry to say. Now, you may have noticed uh, a bit of a change in the look of the Romulan uniforms in this episode. We have Ronald D. Moore to thank for that. As much of a Star Trek fan he is, he was definitely not a fan of the TNG look Romulans, and he lobbied heavily for Bob Blackman to update their design a bit. Oh, and another new item here is the Flaxian ship that the Romulans blow up. That is a new design, though we will see a similar looking model in Voyager. Oh, and let's talk about guest stars. Now, it is a Garrick-centric episode, so of course, welcome back to Andy Robinson, but we do have some other interesting characters along the way. Retaya, the Flaxian assassin-slash-fragrance vendor, is played by Carlos La Camara. He was born in Havana, Cuba, and at just two years old was moved to the U.S. when his family left as the revolution was getting underway. He started acting in the early 80s, appearing on screen for the first time in the movie Zapped. Then he racked up a huge number of TV credits, all the cool shows like the A-Team, T.J. Hooker, Alien Nation, and many more. He even did an episode of Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. There's a shout out to listener Alan, better known as Chiromaniac. Look for a Riker meme coming your way. We have a very mysterious Cardassian informant who knows Odo. He's played by Joseph Ruskin. And any of you who have been paying attention to Star Trek trivia over the years know that Joseph Ruskin holds a special place in Trek history. We first saw him on TOS as Galt in the Gamesters of Triskelion, and he has an appearance in every series through Enterprise, except TNG, but he was an insurrection, so we give him that one as a pass. We saw him once before as Tumek in DS9's The House of Quark, and you can look forward to one more DS9 by that same character. Juliana McCarthy plays Mila. Juliana was born in 1929, but her on-camera credits start in 1970. She has an impressive number of guest roles and feature film appearances like Starship Troopers and The Frighteners, but she has some really interesting recurring roles, too. She was a regular on the short-lived 1991 revival of Dark Shadows, and she played Liz Foster on The Young and the Restless, which she played on and off between 1975 and 2010. And speaking of recurring, Juliana will be back as Mila two more times on DS9. We have a Romulan from the Tall Shi'ar who is played by Darwin Carson. Her career in front of the camera starts in the early 80s, mostly TV guest roles, though she does have a bit part in Beverly Hills Cop. This is her only Star Trek appearance. And finally, at the end of the show, we are reintroduced to Enabrin Tain, who is, of course, played again by the great Paul Dooley. Now, we don't need to go through his incredible resume again, but we did talk about him as recently as Season 2 of DS9, when he played an Aubrey Tain in The Wire, 
we will see Tane, and thus Paul Dooley, two more times. What do you get when you cross a dinosaur with a pig? Prologue. Bashir and Garrick are having a sort of contentious lunch. No more contentious than usual, though perhaps in a different way. Garrick's talking about what a waste of space Shakespeare seems to have been, while Julian is practically inhaling his food. He has to. Garrick was late. Garrick says this happens a lot with humans, though, rushing through their food. Fear of starvation amid plenty, he surmises. Somebody should do a study. Garrick says his goodbyes, sort of ushered to it by Major Kara, who has business with the doctor. Barely have they started, though, when there's an explosion in Garrick's shop. Though the Cardassian had made it back to the shop, he does survive the blast. Act 1. Sisko, O'Brien, and Odo are looking over Garrick's shop post-blast. O'Brien says it looks like it could have been an accident, though Odo finds that hard to believe. Practically on cue, O'Brien finds residue of a rare, unstable material. Couldn't have gotten there by itself, which pretty much kills the must-have-been-an-accident idea. Sisko puts DS9 on lockdown. Nobody leaves until they figure out who tried to kill Mr. Garrick. In the medical bay, Odo and Sisko are quizzing an on-the-mend Garrick about who might want him dead. Me? A simple tailor? I can't imagine. So he's still doing that. Sisko doesn't like it, though Garrick says he's told them everything he can think of, a claim he reasserts with Dr. Bashir when the two are alone. So Bashir shares the story of the boy who cried wolf. The point, he says, if you lie all the time... Nobody's going to believe you, even when you're telling the truth. Though Garrick picks up a different point, that you should never tell the same lie twice. Later, in security, Odo has Garrick looking over recent ship's manifest to see if he sees anyone who's been to DS9 lately who might want to kill him. Their talk is interrupted by O'Brien. He's found residue near the other residue that proves that the bomb in Garrick's shop was waiting until it sensed a being of a specific type. This time, a Cardassian. Odo says that type of weapon is known to be favored by Flaxian assassins, and it just so happens a Flaxian arrived on DS9 that very morning. Act 2. It takes Odo very little time to confirm that the Flaxian, Rataya, is an assassin. Nothing he can prove, but that wasn't really the point anyway. While Odo was questioning Rataya, O'Brien was putting a tracking device on Rataya's ship, now Odo will follow Rataya to see where he's going and who he's going to. Against his will, Odo will also take Garrick along. Garrick's insisting, and the longer they argue, the greater the risk of losing the Flaxian. Settle in, then, for a really short trip. It looks like the Flaxian ship is about to go to warp. Instead, it explodes. Act 3 so it looks like the Flaxian was killed using a type of explosive used by Romulans. Odo thinks it's possible that the Romulans hired the Flaxian to kill Garrick, then killed the Flaxian, either to cover their involvement or to punish him for failure. Asked why the Romulans would want to kill Garrick, Garrick says he has no idea. And for once, Odo believes him. If he did know, he'd already be lying about it. If they want to know why the Romulans want to kill Garrick... Garrick says they'll have to ask the Romulans, which they do. The Romulans admit to killing Rataya, 
crimes against the Empire, you see. But none of it had anything to do with that cobbler, Garrick. Oh, Taylor, you say. Yeah, we'll correct that. Still alive, is he? Well, whatever. It's not like we care. Anyway, bye. Neither Odo nor Sisko believe the Romulans, though, if he's honest, Odo has to admit that they don't really know anything about the case. They don't know that the Romulans hired Retaya to kill Garrick. They don't even know that Retaya tried to kill Garrick. All they really know is that a bomb went off in Garrick's shop. So Sisko says they should start with Garrick. Never goes anywhere, never does anything. Exiled from Cardassia, they don't know why. Strong possibility that he wasn't operative in the Obsidian Order, but they can't even say that for sure. Probably the attempt on his life had to do with that. So... Odo will go and talk to a special secret friend in the Cardassian government about eh, all of it. The secret Cardassian, he's some shady dude in a shady cave, though he does have answers for Odo. Yes, it was the Romulans who tried to kill Garrick, though what Odo's looking into is the tiniest piece of a great big puzzle. The Romulans have been really active along the Cardassian border. Almost seems like they're prepping for an invasion. The shadowy Cardassian says they'll be ready for that if it comes to that, but it just doesn't make sense. Anyway, Garrick was lucky. Five former Obsidian operatives met their makers on the same day Garrick was meant to meet his. Looks like they were killed by Romulans as well. Mr. Shadow suggests Odo show the names to Garrick and ask what they have in common. Well, they have at least one thing in common— Hearing that they're all dead makes Garrick kind of happy. Still, he lies to Odo about their association until Odo hits Garrick with an unexpected truth. He knows it was Garrick who blew up Garrick's shop. Garrick saw the Flaxian, figured he was there to kill Garrick, then blew up his own shop to draw Odo into the investigation. Garrick tries to deny it, though eventually he folds. Yeah, he did it. The other dead Cardassians... He and they were all associates of Anabran Tain, former head of the Obsidian Order. Why would the Romulans want the six of them dead? Garrick doesn't know, though he thinks Tain might, assuming Tain wasn't killed at the same time as the other five. A quick call to Tain's house, and the old Cardassian isn't there, though his housekeeper, Mila, is. Tain left yesterday, in a hurry, and she doesn't know where he is. Mila thinks Tain is in trouble, and she makes Garrick promise that he'll help Tain if he finds him. Garrick says he will. He promises. And he tells Odo that he'll need a runabout. But Odo says they'll need a runabout. Odo's going with him. Act 4. After a friendly, warm goodbye between Garrick and Dr. Bashir, the Cardassian and Odo are headed for a safe house used by Tain. Odo tries to dig into why Garrick is risking his life for Tain. He figures it's emotional. Despite Tain having sent Garrick into exile, Garrick feels something for Tain, and he'll risk his life to help him. Rather than confirm Odo's supposition, Garrick gives Odo grief for talking about something Odo knows nothing about. Emotion. Dodge Perry, Dodge Perry. The two go their separate ways. Later, coming out of warp near their destination in Cardassian space. Hey, look at that! A decloaking Romulan warbird. 
It's caught the runabout in a tractor beam. Then a couple of Romulan guards beam onto the runabout to escort the Cardassian and the shapeshifter back to the Romulan warbird, where sits Anabran Tain. Good of you to come, he tells Garrick. Saves me from having to send someone else to kill you. Act 5. Tain is really welcoming to both Elam Garrick and Constable Odo. Odo's not interested in anything Tain has to say, and Garrick, well, he's Garrick. Maybe it's small talk, maybe it's hidden meaning. He can't help noticing, though, Tain seems to be out of retirement. Yeah, right? This ship we're on? It's part of a fleet of Romulan and Cardassian ships, says Tain, headed for the wormhole. The fleet will go through the wormhole and attack the Founder's homeworld, the location of which they know because it was shared by Starfleet with the Romulans in exchange for the use of the Defiance cloaking device. Not that this is a Romulan op or a Cardassian op. This is actually a joint operation between the Cardassian secret police, the Obsidian Order, and the Romulan secret police, the Tal Shiar. Yeah, can we talk about me? asks Garrick. Why did you have to kill me and the other five former operatives to make this happen? Tane was just tying up loose ends, since he doesn't plan to go back into retirement when this is over. He plans to, once again, lead the Obsidian Order. And you know what? Garrick still got it. Tane's impressed not only with Garrick's ability to avoid assassination, but that one move, blowing up his own shop to drag Odo into the fray... Seems like old times. So, Garrick can go. Odo will have to stay, but you can go. Or, stay by my side. Be my second-in-command. Join me. End your exile. Serve Cardassia again. Do you want to go back to your shop and hem pants? Or shall we pick up where we left off? And Garrick is in. To be continued. Hey, uh, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to change the world? I know, right? Yeah. yeah pretty good, pretty good. For yeah. people who don't know, uh, John Scully? Was it John? No, mm-hmm. no, it was uh, it was Steve Jobs. When yeah, Steve Jobs saying was... saying that to John Scully. Saying that to John Scully. John Scully, yeah. of course, then came in uh, to be CEO of Apple. And, uh, and and ran Steve Jobs out on a rail. <laughs> yeah, funny how that works out. Yeah. Um, by the way, the other thing that I thought uh, when you were reading that, did you ever watch 30 Rock, you know, with uh, Tina Fey? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, okay, so I loved that show, and there was a running gag that one of the shows within the show was The Rural Juror. Yeah. And uh, every time they said the Flaxian Assassin, or I had written it down as the Flaxian Assassin, I was thinking, next week on the Rural Juror, the Flaxian Assassin. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, a, that was a movie that Jenna had been on, or been in. That's right. And everybody's yeah. like, uh, yeah. the, the Rural Juror. I, you know, <laughs> right. the, the first time she said it, I thought she was having a stroke. Yeah. Somebody exactly. said, and they, everybody else was like, I was just always too embarrassed to ask. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we have to get into this. Uh, Garrick and Bashir having lunch. Now, uh, when I first watched it, I thought it was scrambled eggs. But now I just think it was like little bite-sized pieces of mango. You see, I think there may have been some scrambled eggs there because what I had actually written down was it was like scrambled eggs and pineapple. 
Wait, wait, scrambled eggs and pineapple on the same plate? Oh, nasty. No question. Yeah. I think it was supposed to look like something alien. But, I mean, it's weird because we both thought, I mean, you, you said mango. And sure, I'll go with mango. Why not? Something looked like scrambled eggs. Yeah, they did. I think you hit it right the first time. Okay, whatever. This is a weird eggy citrusy thing going on there. Eggy tropical fruit thing going on there. I yeah, I don't know that I approve of that. But what I do approve of is uh, Delavian chocolates. I don't know what they are, but I want them, and I like the packaging. Yeah, they're apparently hard to get, so mm-hmm. it's not surprising that yeah, it's it, it it definitely goes to your rarefied tastes. I think. Yeah, well, it's like the Wonka bar of space. That's <laughs> you're you're not wrong. That's what it is. Um, that Talarian in the replimat, by the way, just looks bored. <laughs> that, that's they they cut to him because uh, uh, Garrick says something about like, oh, he's he's just enjoying a leisurely lunch, and they cut to the Talarian. He just looks bored out of his mind sitting yeah. there. He may so. he also may just not like the food. Well, that could be it. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, I learned that he's not a Tolarian. He's actually a Canarian and uh, not a Tolarian. And that's not the first time, apparently, nor shall it be the last that somebody is misidentified on DS9 just because, like, hey, the script says one thing. We only got so many alien masks and, you know, Michael Westmer has got to go to the archive and figure out who's what. But so, you know, at least they didn't mistake a Bolian for somebody else. I mean, because you always tell they got the scissors in their hand. They're ready to cut hair. Um, good explosion effect um, in uh, Garrick's tailor shop. It mm. was a good effect on DS9. And we, you saw it kind of happen very suddenly, of course. And you saw the flash from out of the, the corner. And then they got in there. and They had totally redressed that space with all the, the you know, broken pieces of bulkhead and, and smoke coming in and all that. It's very, very cool. And I actually love that line. I'm afraid your pants won't be ready tomorrow after all. It yeah. was exactly, it was a very Garrick thing to say. It, it, it was, yes. Yeah. Although you think, wow, how could he possibly, how could he be that cool after somebody just tried to kill him? But then later, oh. of course, then you know, well, nobody tried to kill him, did they? I mean, they Maybe did. Maybe he'd been pre-planning, maybe been working on that line. Yeah, boy, if I ever time. if I ever fake an assassination attempt on myself, here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> He's two steps ahead, that guy. I know. Well, you know it. Yeah, yeah. There's another good line uh, where uh, Odo says to Garrick about Kira. You know, she doesn't like you, but if she wanted you dead, you would be. <laughs> yeah, right next to Cisco, though. I mean, I kind of yeah. wanted Cisco to be like, "Dude, I am standing right here. Please don't say out loud that my XO." It is just like a killer, like a literal killer. You could have, they, they could have continued that. See, Odo just could have looked at Cisco and gone, you too. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's true. That's yeah. true. You, you know how you tell she likes you, you're still breathing. Yeah, right, right. And I do think that scene with uh, Rataya, uh, the Flaxian assassin, is great. It's very Columbo. It's not the scene where Odo says just one more thing. He actually says that later in the show. Uh, but I thought it was a really good scene and and clearly they're playing off this like tv cop sort of meme that they do with odo from time to time yeah okay i'm kind of with you although i thought the pretext was kind of weak yeah because he's like i want to get my girlfriend some perfume but i can't smell (laughs) why would you want to get your girlfriend perfume at that point if you seriously can't smell i mean because perfume is meant to attract right it's not going to do anything for you I'm just True. saying. Yeah. 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 
Well, that that is very true. But but maybe maybe you just take it to the logical extreme and you just be like, I, look, I I don't I can't smell it. I don't know what it is. I don't care. But she loves. She is crazy about perfume. Yeah, and she will know if I mess this up. So what would be funny then is if the Flaxian is actually not an assassin, just a practical joker. And he's like, oh no, that smells great. Yeah. <laughs> Right, that's his whole shtick. And Odo has to go ahead and buy it because it turns out there's nothing there and he gives it to Kira and then their their relationship never takes off. No, no, this is not going to happen no matter what. Um, I, I, Retaya, though, a very interesting presence, very interesting character. And the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, well, this could just be another Jeffrey Combs character because he plays like 300 people in Star Trek. This could just be another one of them. Um, and I would not have been surprised if that had been uh, Jeffrey Combs. And I, I do think that his hair and Mila I think those are the two that got the attention of the uh, Emmy nominations group. Really? Yeah. All right. Because who else? Uh, else? Dude, I don't know. You tell me there's a nomination for best hair and I'm like, whatever. It's fine. I mean, not that there's anything. I mean, look, I mean, it's work that I couldn't do. I know that I have a friend who actually I have a couple of friends who went to uh, to to school Mm-hmm. Uh, to do hair. One ended up working in a salon. Another ended up working on video shoots and movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get that there's real work there. Uh, it's it, at the same time. I'm I'm like, I don't know. Garrick's hair looked fine, I guess. Bashir, he seems, you know, close cut. I don't know. <laughs> Cisco still had hair this season, so it could be him. He does. He does. Yeah. Could be anybody. Yeah. But you get to do something fun and alien on Retire and put those little, like, you know, bolts all over his head. Whatever, okay, you know, but, okay, but is that hair at that point or is that makeup? Uh, that, I'm going to go hair. All right, fine. Because he had him on his hand as well. Are you telling me that guy has that kind of hair on his hands? Well, it's probably a whole union thing. Yeah. You know, you have to split it up. And, You're nuts. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Oh, and I love this line. Considering those uniforms of theirs, you'd think they'd appreciate a good tailor. Odo throwing shade at the uh, the Romulans and, and not even at the Romulans, just to Cisco about the Romulans. It's like, I know this is a serious thing, but whoa, let's talk about their clothing, shall we? Yeah. Well, they've uh, they've, they've toned down the um, they've toned down the uh, shoulder pads a bit. I guess that's that what Ron Moore the... hated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. That's what he hated. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Other things, I'm sure, too, yeah. but but a little little nod there in the script. Uh, maybe Ron Moore penned that line. You know, you don't get a credit for that, but maybe he was just like, can we just squeeze on a little thing here about how terrible their See, uniforms I'm were? I'm surprised they weren't nominated for an Emmy for Best Shade at Former Costume Designers. Oh, that. Oh, man, I would lobby to have that. Yeah, yeah that, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, but that, that scene with uh, Odo and the informant. Uh, there's something about it like it's good you're playing the whole kind of film noir thing you have the the, the guy literally just in shadow the whole time you only see his eyes he's filming. but there's something about that scene that made me laugh every time I watched it you know the informant is literally like right there like you're just standing right there and he, he tells Odo at first like you know stay still but Odo's just like walking around looking around the whole time yeah yeah, because yeah. like that was the first thing to me. He's like, "Yeah, don't move." And so Odo takes two more steps. Like to the, it's like, dude, he just yeah. said, "Don't move." But he keeps moving, and then and, and Odo's supposed to like not look at him. But remember, Odo is all eyes all the time, or whatever he wants to be. He could manifest two eyes on the back of his head if he wanted to. Right. Well, he and he is just like one giant sensory organ, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that would be yeah, easy. But, yeah. How um, do you think? How do you think? By the way, they arrange that meetup. 
Like, is that a place they used to go or something? Because yeah, it's right? not it's not on Cardassia. It's not on Deep Space Nine. It's like on some barren rock world. But then there are caves that you can go down into. But there doesn't seem to be anything going on there except for some weird lighting. Right. And he's like, like, so like Odo, like, you know, yeah, puts out the like, secret word. He's like, I want to meet you. And the guy's like, yeah, go to the place near the thing where we met that time. I mean, how do you yes. like, how do you arrange that? That I know, right? That well, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's not a good answer to that at all. That's I, I, thank you. Yeah, yeah. But they they have a thing. They, they just they they have a thing. All right. But then all right. So what about this? So Odo turns right at the time uh, that he's supposed to catch the data pad containing the names. Now he, he doesn't. He must know because he knows where the voice is coming from, even though he's still looking around like he has no idea where he is or what's happening. But uh, the informant's like, here, take this. Odo turns around right in the correct direction, sticks his hand out, grabs the data pad. And by the way, that data pad contains the name of five agents who were killed. Mm -hmm. he, he has an entire data pad for five names. I assume that they're disposable. Well, I, here's the thing. It's safer if he goes there and the informant just says, okay, uh, there was Eddie. And there was Robbie, right. and there was TJ, <laughs> and there, you know, remember those names. And then as Odo's walking around, I was going, okay, Eddie, Robbie, TJ. Yeah, right. you know, I just yeah. have to remember to tell those names to Garrick, and right. I'm okay. Then we don't have to have this huge data pad that uh, maybe it's got books for the ride home. Maybe it's got other things. It could have more stuff, sure. I mean, well, like, you know, the whole seven-volume set of that one novel, of course. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that's the whole thing. You've actually got me wondering, though, why did uh, why did Odo even turn around to catch it? The guy should have just, like, thrown it at Odo's back. And then, oh, yeah, and then Odo right. would be like, yeah, I got it. Because yep. <laughs> would just totally, like, you <laughs> yeah. know, sort of morph into him or something like that. And yeah. You yeah. pop it out of his mouth and then walk away whistling whatever <laughs> song he wants to whistle. Yeah. They got changeling songs. Um, now, uh, there is the, the bit about the isolinear rod. You know, mm -hmm. Garrick says to Bashir, do this for me. And he's setting him up and he says, go to the panel. There's a secret compartment. There's an isolinear rod. Eat it. You know, and it's a funny little throwaway bit. Okay, but that's actually one of the changes that was made to turn this into or to turn it from a standalone episode into a two-parter. And, and here's why. So... That would have actually been the thing to get them out of the situation. Um, Garrick would have said uh, at the end of the show uh, to Tane, hey, if you kill me, there's this data rod back at DS9 and Starfleet and everybody else are going to know everything that you're up to. So you better let us go. And everybody felt like, well, this is kind of a cheap way out of this. So they they still liked how that was a... Um, you know, it, it's a common trope that you would find in an espionage sort of story. So they just decided to twist that line around and make it Garrick messing with Bashir. Right. So I kind of like we still have that little hint in there. Uh, but the other kind of interesting thing is that the original draft would have tied uh, Garrick's journey here into the plot line from Second Skin. Remember when he killed Intec at the end? Yes. Just straight up kills him. So they saw a larger opportunity here to say, well, no, no, don't don't make it about that. We'll make it about what's going on with the Cardassians and the Romulans and the stuff we set up before. So there we have an opportunity to make this into a bigger thing. So interesting choices there. Some easy, some more difficult. 
the uh, the stuff that you set up before in um, at the time that Thomas Riker was there. Is that what you're yeah, talking about? Right. Yeah. In, in, yeah. In Defiant. Exactly. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That was kind of actually that was neat to see that come back. And I, I mean, when they talked about it, of course, you kind of knew that it was going to come back, not because I remembered any of the plot points, but it was just too specific. Like, you know, they're doing the secret thing. You know, they're doing the secret thing. Right. It was neat to see it come back, you know, but not next week. Yeah. You know, because yeah. usually that'd be the kind of thing where they'd set it up and then like a week later, two weeks later, you could almost forget that that was a thing that was going on. So, uh, you know, well done in that respect. Yeah, um, exactly. I am. I am curious. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about Garrick, if we can, and not mm-hmm. the, like, the character part of Garrick, but just the, like this part of like, oh, Garrick, he oh, he knows everything, and he's like a spy master, and he's so secretive, and all this stuff. How does he not know about Odo and Kara? <laughs> I mean, so here's what happened: a Flaxian, a Flaxian, yeah. a random Flaxian came on the ship, and he's like, "That guy's here to kill me." So, so he like does this like whole big intricate thing, right? But he can't see the mask making hard eyes at the major every time she walks by. Mm. I, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little, uh, that part, I mean, I know you're saying that's the part that's going to get you. Yeah, I think so. In this episode, that's the part that's going to get me. The part where he just has no clue that as a matter of fact, there is somebody that Odo likes. And uh, I think the only person on Deep Space Nine who doesn't know that, well, the only two people are apparently Major Kira and uh, and plain simple Garrick, incredibly simple Garrick in this case. I think that's absolutely fair. Yeah, uh, he he should know better. He should uh, be better at deduction and just seeing what is obvious. By the way, I, I think I have another favorite line in this episode, and it is, of course, uh, Tane saying, "Always bring your bridges behind you. You never know who might be trying to follow." I think that's. Uh, you know, if no truer Cardassian words were ever spoken. What do you get when you cross a parakeet with a lawnmower? Greed. It's what's for dinner. Yum. Yeah, I know, right? At the very very beginning of the show, I'm, I'm sorry, it's what's for lunch. At the very beginning of the show, Garrick references fear of starvation amid plenty. And he says that's a human thing. I saw somebody on Twitter recently say that Gary Larson, uh, creator of the Far Side comic, who may be coming back, by the way. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Uh, but it's, they said that he and maybe it was the guy behind Bloom County, I'm not sure, but basically held them up as as two of the sanest people in the land uh, because they got rich doing a job and then quit their jobs to pursue hobbies. And this person on Twitter, and forgive me, I can't remember who it was, but this person on Twitter suggested that doing anything else is sociopathic, Um, you know, because you work, you get rich, and then, you know, you go do something else, I think was his thinking. Um, I couldn't help thinking about that kind of thing when Garrick was talking, and and it sort of goes to like the, I don't know, it kind of goes to the whole... um, um, uh, post scarcity, whatever, but people are still like ravenous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was thinking about you know, like 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 companies that just like pile and pile more money, or people that just pile and pile more money. Um, I, I couldn't help thinking about the wealth disparity. Honestly, um, the, the rich get richer, as they say in Glengarry Glen Ross. Although they don't say it in the nicest way, there are probably like three or, or four expletives when they say the rich get richer. Um, it was just kind of interesting. Maybe it's just like one of those gem things uh, that, that, that we used to talk about uh, back when there were more of those. 
Um, I, I found an interesting thing, though, and, and not something I could really let go of because it just reminded me of so many news stories that you see or so many, you know, things that you see where people just like, you know, just amass more wealth rather than rather than, uh, you know, uh, turning it back around or, or doing something else with it. Well, and do you think they're saying something with that? I mean, because uh, Garrick is... Garrick is Cardassian. He's an iconoclastic Cardassian. He's not um, he, he's not cut from the same cloth, as it were, as the other Cardassians. But the other Cardassians are sort of looking at uh, power and conquest the way that you're talking about wealth, which is if they're not doing that, if, they, if they're not just always strengthening their position, then then they are nothing. They have no purpose like that. That is their entire thing. I I will tell you honestly I don't know what to take from this episode as far as do I think they were saying anything there because when you tell me which we talked about before we recorded this episode because we didn't know I didn't know whether we we're going to do this as one part or two part um when you tell me that it was originally like just a thing that it was not meant to be part of a two part my assumption is once they decide they're going to make it a two part thing then there's a bunch of filler like mm. like there's a conversation between uh Kira and Bashir that's about a minute long at the top of the show where they're talking about these people that are coming onto the station, but it's going to be hard to like get the atmosphere right for them and their quarters and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. That was really just to give Garrick a minute to get down to Garrick's to blow up the ship or mm-hmm. to blow up his shop. It has nothing to do with anything. Yep. I kind of assume as I'm watching this episode that a lot of the intricacies and like the twists and the turns and we'll add this part and it turns out it was this guy and this other thing was sort of like, wow, we were jamming a lot into 48 minutes, but now we've got... Well, 48 times two, which is however much. <laughs> Forgive me. I don't know. Um, I can't think of it off the top of my head. But I assume that this was just sort of uh, filler, not pillar filler necessarily, but filler. Mm-hmm. And so do I think they're saying anything? I don't know. They were saying something to me, but I don't think it was actually a point they were trying to make because I don't think it's a thing that ever comes back. Yeah. Well, but I, I, here's what's so... I, I guess this is why you and I both really dig the Cardassian sort of uh, not Cardassians because of who they are and what they do, but we, we dig the way that this show has developed and explored Cardassian culture because look for a long time, you look at Klingons is not to say bad things about Klingons, but it's basically you boil it down to, Oh, honor and glory and fighting and everything just sort of revolves around that with the Cardassians. There's this real attempt to give a lot of texture to who they are and what motivates them and how their culture is completely and utterly different from a lot of the other cultures that we've met. So I think Having a conversation like that and and Garrick being able to point out, recognize these things from his point of view uh, with Bashir is pretty fascinating. That's why I loved uh, the boy who cried wolf uh, moment Mm. in the show, because, you know, here's the thing. Garrick's interpretation is not wrong for Garrick and for probably any other Cardassian who would hear that story. He is using the set of cultural presumptions and presuppositions that he has. He, he's, he's using the culture that he comes from to interpret that story. Um, 
and that's not to say that somebody, well, I mean, clearly somebody on Earth wrote this episode. But, right. you know, is that to say that somebody on Earth couldn't possibly have that interpretation as well? As we record this episode, I honestly think you could argue that there are politicians walking around today who are like, yeah, that's exactly what I hear. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, sure. and you know, I don't sure. I don't want to get political, so I won't say who and I won't say what. But there are politicians out there who will say something about something one day ask them about the same topic the next day and they'll say something completely different. I mean, so yeah, Garrick's interpretation is spot on for Garrick. And honestly, he's not wrong. I mean, he's wrong, but he's not incorrect. Yes. Right. (laughs) I'll go with that. (laughs) It's a nice way of saying that same thing with the, uh, burning your bridges. You know, I, I just love the, the, the twisting of these, very conventional human ideas, these little axioms that we hear, uh, these little fables that we hear that are supposed to tell us a very clear, very obvious moral point. But as soon as you change the context, well, you you get to change the point as well. Let, Let me ask you this. So you at one point in our recording, you were kind of fed up with the idea of the Garrick Innocent Act. Yeah, You know, the, 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 we, we keep letting him off the hook. It's like, oh, it's innocent Garrick. He's just a simple tailor. When are we just going to say, all right, dude, you're a spy. This is who you are. This is what the deal is. I think I, I feel like we got to that point in this episode and even leading up to this episode. Particularly a guy like Bashir. Bashir's smart. He's no, he's being led on, but he's sort of playing the game. I mean, look, if I was, if I got to have lunch every day with a Cold War spy who wanted me pretend like he's not a Cold War spy while telling me stories about being a spy in the Cold War, I'd be like, sure, man, I will just, I will call you the simple tailor from down the street because that's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, Cisco snaps, Odo snaps in a great way. Um, do you think we're over that hump or are we over that hump enough for you? Anyway, just curious your, your take on it or where we are with this guy. Well, how can we ever know? Because I mean, until we see the next time, right? I don't mean the next episode because spoiler alert, we've actually watched the next episode. (laughs) Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was, it was frustrating to see it all happen again. It was great to everybody to have everybody go, okay, enough of this. But mm-hmm. it's written by different people. It's written, you know, for different reasons at different times. I mean, there are things you can tell they're not completely on board with exactly what the Cardassians are because I'm sorry. I think that, I think that, uh, uh, Garrick would absolutely love Julius Caesar knowing that Brutus is going to kill or that, or that uh, it was Brutus, right? Who kills mm-hmm. Julius yeah. Caesar. Knowing that Brutus was going to kill Julius Caesar, that's exactly what uh, Bashir was complaining about with the Cardassian uh, mysteries. Yeah. Everybody's everybody. We already know who's guilty. And he's like, yeah, right. But it's finding out how exactly they're guilty. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think uh, I mean, maybe he would be bothered that uh, Julius Caesar was so obtuse. But I don't think he would be bothered necessarily that Brutus uh, that he knew from the beginning that Brutus was going to kill Julius Caesar because the way Cardassian novels work, that's how that works. All of which is to say you can't ask me now whether we've gotten over it enough because we don't know what Garrick is going to be the next time there's a story about Garrick. We don't know what people are going to let him get away with the next time they let him get away with something or the next time they mm-hmm. don't let him get away with something. So check back with me next time there's a there's a Garrick 
uh, centric okay. story. Not next week, but yeah, next uh, time yeah. there's a new Garrick centric story. If he's still doing that, and and nobody says can it. If they go ahead and let him pretend, then no, I would say that we haven't gotten over it enough, but we won't know until we do. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. And then I, I guess I would still ask the same thing. Is it okay to let him pretend? Is there anything to be gained from that? And, you know. Well, eh. I don't know. I mean, it depends yeah. on the story. I guess we'll see in the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, just a couple of uh, uh, other good lines that I, I really dug in this episode. I'll point out before I, I get to another talking point here. But um, Odo says to Tane uh, and referring to Garrick as well, you both go to such lengths to hide the true meaning of your words. You end up saying nothing. Mm-hmm. I just think that's delightful and insightful. Funny. The other funny line from Garrick to Tane, I never betrayed you, at least not in my heart. <laughs> which you know i think um I, I, that's just hilarious to me yeah it's, uh, it's a funny uh, line i don't know yeah. what you're supposed to do with it yeah well right but, <laughs> okay that's cool yeah it's like is that a good thing or a, a, a the worst thing in fact uh, <laughs> the, the way that you're putting that yeah um when we got to the end of this story i i kind of saw this uh, you know, the, these two old, whether they're like the, the Cold War spies that I'm talking about, you know, these these two old kind of dogs of war who are like looking for one last fight, particularly Tane in this case, the way they framed it, uh, to relive the glory days. And I was thinking about other Star Trek stories where we see someone who can't adapt to the new reality, who can't accept that there is an alternative to not just working for peace, but an alternative to an entire life that they have lived with one motivation, one focus, and and one understanding of how kind of their world works. This is a slightly different situation. You know, Tane isn't trying necessarily to relive an old fight. He's trying to pick a new one, and he has no idea of what he's getting himself into. He's just basing this on some Starfleet intelligence passed along through the Romulans. Garrick, on the other hand, you know, his response, uh, like in most of the episode, is almost purely emotional. You know, this opportunity to be himself again, to not have the stain on his name anymore and to be back in the good graces of others. Like there's a lot of motivating factors for him. But I guess for him, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. And we have a whole other episode to do that. Uh, but from a from a character thing here, I, I thought about. You know, you can go to Star Trek Beyond and you, you see you have this captain who can't get out of the mindset of my job is to fight mm-hmm. and I'm worth nothing unless I go fight. And uh, we, you know, we had that before. You go back to like a Ron Tracy or, you know, any <laughs> other number of Star Trek characters. Well, Star Trek Six. I mean, that was uh, that was Kirk's whole yeah. thing, right? Like, you know, yeah. I there's a new reality and I'm not sure I'm built for it. <laughs> of course, yeah. then he came back in Generations. But what are you going to do? Yeah, right. (laughs) There you go. There was one other thing that I uh, kept stumbling on in here. Um, We once again find ourselves at the wrong seeming end of the uh, Faustian bargain um, between Starfleet and the Romulans, right? Mm. Um, It's all around the cloaking device again, which was this thing that we all decided a long time ago we shouldn't have. Whether that was to keep peace or whether that was because we just thought it would upset the balance of power. Uh, not to be confused with the balance of terror. I don't. I don't know what it was exactly, but there was this piece of tech, uh, you know, that we decided a long time ago that we shouldn't have. But now it would be helpful, so we make a deal with the devil. 
And in exchange, we give the devil information. And hey, what do you know? The devil uh, is the devil uh, with devilish minions swirling around, right? Mm-hmm. So driven by fear, we do a deal with a dirty dealing government that not surprisingly doesn't make the party uh, with whom we're dealing more moral. It, it, it puts us and, and we've hit on this two or three times recently because there have been two or three times that this deal we made has come back to bite us in the backside. Yeah. And, and, I, and I keep reading that as a moral and I don't know if it's one that will ever be addressed in Deep Space Nine, but it's one that it seems to me keeps happening where it's like, wow, so we did this thing we probably shouldn't have done. And now we're in a, uh, a potentially compromising situation. And I, at some point, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to be with Kira a few weeks ago, who was like, you know what? I'll rip the cloaking device out myself, give it back to you, and we can be done. And it kind of feels like maybe that's, uh, well, morally anyway, maybe that's what Starfleet should do. I don't disagree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I got nothing to add to that, except I, I I think you're right. Or at the very least, you know, I would have liked to have possibly seen the behind the scenes on that. I don't mean from the production end. I don't mean like, you know, sitting in the office at Paramount while they talked about this. Although that would have been interesting, too. But in a different Star Trek, do you get somebody at Starfleet raising their hand and saying, this is a terrible idea to rely on technology from somebody who would just as soon see us dead or conquered um, just because it's expedient for this one mission or the, this one exploratory defensive thing. Um, yeah, maybe in a different Star Trek that would have happened. What do you get when you cross a snake with an erector set? Every now on the mission log, we'll we'll tackle the title before we even get to our wrap-up, where we explore morals, meanings, and messages, and whether the whole thing stands the test of time. I mean, the two words can. The two words actually make sense. It's not like some poetic thing we have to parse. But uh, here's my take on it, and tell me if you agree. There's an improbable cause to the explosion in Garrick's tailor shop, for sure. You know, that that's improbable. Uh, but is it also the cause that precipitated the Romulan-Cardassian team-up that is also improbable. Oh, wait, and I got a third one. Is it also an improbable cause that they would go after this thing in the Dominion, in the in the Gamma Quadrant going after them, that that is just an improbable cause, too? So, so much improbability circling around this. Are there any other improbable things here that I should know about? Ah, nothing leaps to mind. Okay. It, I mean, the title's fine. It's not, it's not, it's not really oniony. I guess it is oniony, actually, because you peel away a layer and there's another layer almost exactly like it. Yeah. But it's not, you know, it's not, as you said, nothing really poetic. It's just... No, nothing poetic, just a lot of improbability. Lots of improbability. Yeah. yeah. Lots of cause and effect, and yet none of it really seemed to make a whole lot of... Eh, none of it was terribly probable... <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a title. It's fine. Yes, it's slow yes. enough. Yeah. Hey, can I ask a question? Um, sure. So I said in the last segment that uh, we didn't know, and I said I didn't know whether we were doing uh, you know one or two out of this two-parter. And so uh, having watched both of them, I asked you what your thought was. And you said, I think, uh, well, I want to watch it again, but I think I want to do the first part as as one episode and the second part as another episode. Yeah. Um, why? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Ken, 
I, I think there are a few ways that I can answer that. Um, Ooh, does one of them include a song? <laughs> and it goes a little something like this. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the first reason is just for us purely experimental because I don't think we've handled any other two parters um, as one parters. We have. Did we, well, which one did we do? We didn't do a two-parter as one part each. We actually did a three-parter as one part and then two other parts. Oh, right. Uh, right. Homecoming and then yeah. the circle and the siege. Because I was yeah, thinking about that. So it was like, this This is weird. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's not completely unprecedented, but it's uh, it's unusual. It's a little weird. The other reason is this. So I, the thing that I kept reading that kept standing out was they wrote it as a single episode. They wrote it as a single episode. They wrote it as a single episode and then made, quote unquote, you know, minor changes in order to turn it into a two-parter. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how if you had watched this back in 1995, I think this premiered, um, you would have seen this, this one episode in Probable Cause, and then you would have had to have waited a week to see what happened on the Dias cast. So I was very curious myself to see if we could handle this, if we could take this half of a two-parter and view it the way that the audience viewed it in 1995 and see what the writers and producers were seeing in this to say, well, we have like 90% of an episode here, but we really need to make it two parts. So we're really just going to make these minor changes to see if we can get it to that point. Because I think we, we mostly have an episode here. The thing that we don't have at the end here is a neat wrap up, which would have ended with just, you know, Tane saying, well, okay, we're done. You can go back because you have the thing in your room that's the isolinear rod with some secret information for Starfleet. Mm-hmm. And everybody felt that was a cheat, that it was a way out. But the other mechanics of this plot pretty much stayed the same. You know, you have the assassin who's really just the diversion. You have the fake explosion. Then you have the assassin getting killed. So I, I was just very curious to see what happens. What do we end up with? If we take the episode purely on its own merits and we and our audience have to do what the audience did more than 20 years ago, which is to wait <laughs> and wait and see what is the value of it when you pair it with another piece when the time comes. So that was my thinking on it. The only the only issue that uh, this presents is I don't think we can really talk about. Uh, the things that we normally talk about, like, um, you know, messages, morals, meanings, and does the whole thing hold up? Because we're halfway across a bridge now. And yeah. we don't know whether this bridge is going to hold up. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. right. And, until we try to cross the whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, are we done? Well, well and, uh, but I, I will say this. I mean, look, yeah, we, we can't really tackle the morals, meanings, messages because we don't know how this wraps up. Um what we or well, I won't speak for you. What I can say about it is that even as half of a whole, what it comes down to in my analysis of this is just saying, like, look, there's great character work, which is usually a given. Um, I particularly love the scenes with Garrick and Odo because you have two powerhouses with Andy Robinson and Rene Aubergenois. Just wind them up and let them go. They're going to deliver every single time. Um, and when you have characters like that, I kept thinking, you know, we have all these scenes with them. You've got them in uh, uh, Odo's uh, office. You have them on the shuttle. 
they're covered in prosthetics. And I watch that and go, you know what, man, it just doesn't matter what genre we're dealing with. It doesn't matter how much prosthetics they're dealing with. The humanity, the emotion, the conflict, the subtext, it all just plays. It all is delivered. Uh, the dialogue is great. So these are all things that, again, despite the fact that we don't have an ending, <laughs> these are all things that I think make at least this point in the story work very well at this point and the production worked very well but we do have to wait and see how this all gets tied up in a week so come back and join us in a week and pretend like it's 1995 and we're barreling toward the end of season three of ds9 in the meantime Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Hey, there are a bunch of podcasts on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Heck, so many, we call it a network. Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Track Files, Daily Star Trek News, and Shabam. Shabam. Podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be neat. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Oh, look, on the next Mission Log, the die is cast. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at Warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at KiTheory.com. For the answers to the riddles in this episode, tune in next week. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.